South American soccer an in-depth look at the action across the whole continent, providing you with a tactical, analytical and critical view supported by Pinnacle's unrivaled odds. This is South American Soccer Insights. Well, thank you for joining us for episode two of South American Soccer Insights, brought to you by Pinnacle. Buenos Aires is white and red this week, so we look back on River Plate Super Classico Triumph. We also assess the Copa Libertadores and Copa Sudamericana semi-finals with a view ahead to November's all Brazilian matchups, and we also look ahead to this month's World Cup qualifying triple header. For all of that that we'll cram into an hour, more or less, I'm joined once again by, firstly, our man in Medellin, uh, Simon Edwards. Great to have you back on, Simon. No, thanks very much. Yeah, delighted to be here. Looking forward to getting into everything. And uh, yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me once again. And once again as well, we also have with us Tom Robinson. Uh, Tom, plenty for us to get through this week. Yeah, it's been it's going to be a bumper edition, I think. We're obviously with that huge game in in Buenos Aires that you mentioned there um, to kick things off. But yeah, so much going on. It's getting real crunch moments in in all those competitions. So yeah, really really fascinating. And uh, yeah, looking forward to discussing it with you guys. Yeah, well, we we'll have to jump straight in. As we say, we've got a lot to get through. It's been one month more or less since we we last sat down. Um, before we touch on those topics that we talked about in the first episode we'll kick things off with the big game in South America one of the big games always in world football when these two sides meet River and Boca the latest Super Classico went down the weekend just gone and really as I said in the intro one half of Buenos Aires will be substantially happier than the other it was a dominant win for River Plate supporters of course were back this weekend in Argentina we had the largest 50% I've ever seen inside a stadium, I think. <laughs> Monty Mandel looked fairly close to capacity rather than being half full. Um, and supporters, after that long absence, were treated to really a dream return. Um, Tom, I'll start with you. It was really a dominant win for River. I know it was only a 2-1 in terms of the scoreline, but really the game and the balance of play was anything but a 2-1 result. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was one of those games where the scoreline doesn't do it justice just because River, I think, could have been three, four, even five ahead. Uh, and obviously that late consolation goal for Bocker at the end there made the scoreline look a bit more respectable. But I don't think many of the Azula Ioro are going to be feeling that good about things. Yes, they'll probably point to the fact that early Marcus Rojo red cards um really condition the way that the game went. But to be honest, even before that, I, I was thinking, you know what, River are looking strong favourites here, ruled on by that big um, uh, home crowd, as you mentioned there. Um, and yeah, Julian Alvarez, the star man, really writing himself into River folklore with that that brace. The first um, player to score a brace in the Super Clasico in the Monumental since uh, Gonzalo Higuain in 2006. And I mean, it was quite some goal to, to kick things off, wasn't it, Peter? Yeah, I mean, a wonderful goal. I, I think for both goals, particularly the second one, but for both goals, Agustin Rossi will probably feel somewhat responsible. He seemed to get a little bit in a muddle with that very good long shot, as you said, for Alvarez's first. But Julian Alvarez, 
this season has really taken his game to that next level and, and it, it seems only a matter of time before Argentina bid farewell to watching Julian Alvarez on its home soil for club level because he's just a, a young player at 21 years of age who this season now is scoring goals, is creating goals, scoring different types of goals as we saw yesterday in a big, big occasion against Boca Juniors. Of course, called up to the Argentina squad as well. And, and Simon, I think as someone who watches a lot of young players in South America, Julian Alvarez now seems to be putting himself into that tier of the very top bracket across the continent and someone, as I said, who looks destined for that move to Europe. Yeah, absolutely. He's a player who's very, very sharp, who's very, very confident, gets his shots off really well. He's a player with a lot of quality. Um, and, you know, there was always a kind of a question. He's not quite a number nine. He's not quite a 10. But, but what is he? But whatever he is, it's definitely working. So I think the question will be in terms of his development, where will he find his place in a team? What, what position will he ultimately play? But there's undoubtedly quality there and he's a very dangerous player, an explosive player and a player full of confidence. And if he can do it on the biggest stage of all, then, you know, in South American football, then I'm sure he won't have any issues moving on to Europe and and doing very well. Confidence is so key, isn't it? Because just that, just the balls to kind of take on that shot from range. It was, I mean, such a weird sort of dipping shot. Yeah, Rossi didn't look great with it, but at the same time, you're not really expecting that. And also the fact you know, we've mentioned that he's versatile there. You're not quite sure what type of forward he is exactly in the long run. The fact that he's picking the ball up in the middle of the pitch, driving, taking people on. He's not just someone who's who's got that very good finishing, as we saw with his second goal. He's someone who can, you know, pop up all over the place and he's a real complete forward. I think that's something that we've always seen from him, even in the early days, even when he wasn't finding the net quite as much, is he felt like, a modern forward who would fit into the certainly the European game and and that's why he was so highly rated at national team and, and within uh, River as well so the fact that he's getting fast tracked into that national team is just kind of shows that that faith that he's now repaying um, to Gachalo and, and and everyone else really so that's definitely the the, the big takeaway, I think, from from that game. But there was some other good performance as well, wasn't there? There was Santi Simon, who looks a really good talent. Um De La Cruz as well is is always one of the guys running the game. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons to be positive for, for River. But Peter, you you were commentating on the game. How did you see the uh, the Rocco red card? Do you think that was a little bit harsh? I mean, perhaps you could have looked at maybe the second one if you're a certain way inclined, maybe to suggest it was early in the game. It's one of those that sometimes you see referees, particularly when someone's already picked up a yellow card, let it slide and maybe just have another warning. But on the flip side, you've seen yellow cards given for those challenges. And I think for a guy of Marcos Rojo's experience, we know what you can question sometimes is mentality. And this for me is another example of that because He's supposed to be there as a figure of experience in that Boca lineup. There's a lot of other young players there. They should be looking to a guy like Marcos Rojo in these kind of occasions as an example. And for me, what he did was really put himself in that situation. The first yellow card, he does try to pull out of it, but it's a really reckless lunge in the first place. And he brings contact and, and stops a counterattack, even though the thing that was most reckless was the player leading the charge for River had had a heavy touch, had already sort of overrun it. And then Rocco comes in with that. And then to do the challenge that he makes one minute later, um, as I say, could be looked at as harsh. I know Boca look at that and, and really pinpoint the referee's decision has really harmed them. 
But but for me, as I say, Rocco puts himself in that situation. And then to compound that, I feel as though even with 10 men, Boca should be able to offer a little bit more in a game. Um, because as soon as he got sent off and they went down to 10 men, the game looked finished. And that was before Alvarez has scored two goals. It just became so one-sided. And I don't know whether Bataglia maybe panicked a little bit. He took off Cardona and tried to just bring on another defender. And it ended up being this 4-4-1 formation that basically really ended up them just playing purely defensively. And there was no player in that midfield that could transition them out of defending. Um, But either way, it seemed to just play into River's hands, invite the pressure. And as I say, once they scored even the first, you kind of looked at the game and thought, I don't really see, unless there's a big shift and a big tactical change here, how Boca get themselves back into it. Um, So, yeah, that was my my takeaway, really, for the rock or red card. However, um, we do see, of course, River go top of the table with that win. Um, Tejera's the call of a play this evening on Monday night. Um, with the opportunity to go back top. But um, Simon, when you look at River going top at this stage after a super classical win, they're now unbeaten in, in something like eight, nine games. Sometimes they haven't looked particularly convincing, but yesterday they showed their strengths. They've certainly got really good options going forward. Given their coach, given the options they have in that squad, a stronger squad than most in Argentina, do you see them now as probably title favourites in Argentina? And could this be the elusive league title for Marcelo Gallardo? Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of their strengths, you know, they have a clear identity and it's, it's obviously evolved slightly over time, but there's consistency there in terms of ideas. The manager's been there. They've got good creative players. They play a good sharp passing game. And then there's also good youth coming through as well. And they've incorporated that. I think Boca are kind of hoping and praying some of the youth will come in and and give them a lift, but whereas River seems to have more of a, a smooth transition uh, and they've kind of reinvented the side by bringing some young players through. So I think River are in the, definitely in the driving seat. Um, I think a title is 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 due for this this group. Um, and I think, yeah, definitely they'll be looking forward to winning the title. It's the creativity they have. You mentioned Cardona coming off and Boca kind of running out of ideas. River Plate have like three or four very, very good creative players who could could make something and, and Boca just don't have that. So for me, I enjoy watching River play and, you know, I think they probably are favourites and, you know, I, I'm going to enjoy enjoy their run to a potential title there. Yeah, I mean, just just before we finish on that subject then, Tom, we have to mention Marcelo Gajardo this week primarily as well because he was also in the headlines really linking him quite strongly with the Barcelona job. Um, now he seems to have quite quickly, as he has done with any approach over the last year or so, distanced himself and said, my contract's until the end of the year with River Plate and I'm going to see that out and then we'll see. Do you see him not perhaps taking the Barcelona job, but do you think this is the final few months of Marcelo Gajardo's tenure at River Plate? Um, obviously, he hasn't won a league title. That would be the ideal way to finish that. But because of the difficulty of winning another Libertadores title as we discussed in episode one. Do you see this as an ideal time maybe for Marcelo Gallardo to finally take that step to another job? Yeah, I think uh, I think it is a sensible time, isn't it? Obviously, like you said, if he can win that title, that league title, then he can leave having won everything there is to win pretty much. So that would be a really nice way to sort of tie it up with a bow and leave in, obviously he's going to leave an absolute legend, probably the best manager ever for River Plate. But um, I think 
definitely those Libertadores performances that we've seen over the, the last couple of seasons, maybe not quite being as competitive and not getting to that, not getting over those final hurdles show that the way the, the tide is turning in South America, as we mentioned on the previous podcast. And yeah, I think he's, he's done everything he can do. Obviously he could have a job for life there if he wanted. I'm sure he'll be back at some point, but yeah, I think maybe as the things start to settle down after the, the, the pandemic interruptions in football, then it's, it's kind of a nice time to sort of take stock, maybe have a new challenge and, and go from there. The Barcelona job, a, a bit of a poison chalice really. And I I think I'd rather him steer clear of that at the moment, even though a year or two ago we were thinking, oh yeah, that'd be a great job for him. But everything that's unraveling there in Catalonia means that maybe he'd want to take a, a, a different job. Certainly I think one that wasn't, wasn't going in with such immediate pressure and obviously in, um, you know, an unstable situation behind the scenes would, would also just be, you know, setting them up to fail almost. We've seen great managers have, have trouble there. So yeah, maybe sort of what a lot of Argentinians might see as an underwhelming first step into Europe would probably be my preference because he'd be able to go establish himself a bit more, bed in without that intense pressure. And you don't want to then fail at, um, in your first job and then come back with your tail between your legs to South America. So yeah, it's going to be really interesting. And he's, he's a manager who's who's absolutely fantastic and, and proven everything, but it'd be great to see him in a non-River context um, showing what he can do. Yeah, it's certainly going to be fascinating to see the next step in his career and also, of course, how River Plate go about replacing the guy that's been so integral to their recent history, the, the wonderful history they've responded to from their relegation. Um, but that segues us nicely into... The Libertadores River obviously fell pretty short this year, and we now know who's going to be in the final. And given what we were discussing last time around, we're probably not surprised to see the two finalists. It's an all Brazilian final. Flamengo, in the end, were too much for Barcelona, despite the fact that we tried to sell it as being perhaps more more even than, than it looked on paper. Um, and Palmeiras did what Palmeiras can do, and really ended up just having a little bit, maybe too much smarts for Atletico Mineiro. They won on away goals. Um, Simon, how did you see those those two semi-finals? Yeah, I, you know, uh, Flamengo were, were dominant, really. I mean, I think, you know, the scorelines were comfortable, but I think the games were, were, were more comfortable than they looked. You know, there was always a sense with Flamengo that it's kind of theirs to lose, probably in terms of the quality. Um, but, you know, Barcelona tried, but... I just think that Flamengo always had that gear they could step up to as well. You know, just the quality they have, the depth. Uh, they have David Luiz coming on as well, um, obviously adding a bit more. And you just look at the quality they have, it's incredible. Um, so I think Flamengo were comfortable. Um, and I think in terms of Palmeiras, Palmeiras just, just loved her. They have so much quality, but they would much prefer to win on away goals or keep it tight. And, uh, you know, Eduardo Vargas had quite a few chances as well. He was... Uh, came in for, for Minero, got the start, uh, and he could have, he got the goal for them as well, but he could have made the difference in that tie had things fallen differently. But yeah, with Palmeiras, it's just they just love to win ugly. You know, <laughs> the, all the quality they have kind of means that uh, at times it will, be, it will be great and it's, you know, it's irresistible talent that they have in the side. But when it comes down to it, they're just a team that gets over the line. Um, so you know, I, it, for me, it's the final that we probably expected. 
Um, Minero have a good side as well, but I just think for me, Palmeiras, I always, when I'm asked at the start of the Libertadores who I'm back in, I, I say Palmeiras because I just think that they have that experience, that game management, that toughness, that organization, and then, you know, a load of international players on top of that. And it's a, it's quite a good formula. Um, so un- unfortunate for Barcelona, uh, getting to the semi-final is a, is a good result for them, obviously. They'll be disappointed, but I just think Flamengo... Uh, <laughs> are a Champions League level team to be honest um, and when it clicks then you know it's very hard for anyone to stop them yeah I mean as I say we tried to to give some arguments why Barcelona could pull off the upset in the end it, it was how most of us expected and certainly how the odds how the odds looked at it in the, before the first leg they saw rightly so Flamengo as huge favourites and, and so it proved but we always knew the other semi-final would be would be tighter um, do you think Atletico Minero will look back on that semi-final, Tom, though, and, and see that as a real missed opportunity, despite, as Simon just said, the strengths of Palmeiras? Yeah, I think they they do. As much as it was um, Palmeiras winning it, I think you could also argue that it was also a case of Minero losing it. You know, that first leg was was not one for the ages, if anyone watched it. Um, I, my heart goes out to you because there was, I think, Atletico Mineiro had no shots on target. Palmeiras had one. Diego, uh, Diego Costa obviously won the penalty. Hulk sends the keeper the wrong way, but hits the post. And that's a huge chance. Um, you know, if, if he'd scored that, then I think we'd be looking at a completely different tie. But at the end of the day, Palmeiras, they kind of set up to make sure that they didn't concede that that away goal in the first leg and then they knew that they can always you know as long as they score basically they've got a really good chance of getting through and and that's how it worked out you know they set up with five at the back with Felipe Melo just in front of them and then kind of let the the other four outfield players just run around doing bits there and and you know sat back I think it was about 40% possession for them but um, you know they knew how to take their chances. And as Simon said, they've got that grit, that knockout nous. Um, and, and I think that's what makes them still really, really dangerous in the final for as much as Flamengo have got incredible attacking talent um, with Bruno and Enrique, the the star of the show with a, with a brace in both games there and, and someone who's showing once again, why he's such a brilliant player in, in, in the South American level. I still think that, you know, this is a side that knows how to get it over the line. You know, their league form is a bit of a, um, a red herring, I think, when it comes to these cup, cup competitions. Um, and they've got a really good manager who, who knows what it takes to, to get over the line. And again, getting the better of Kuka, um, which I'm sure will, will frustrate the Mineiro man. But um, yeah, it's, it's a side that frustrates me in many ways because I think Palmeiras could do so much more with the players that they've got. And at the end of the day, they just kind of do what they have to, which is at the end of the day, how you, how you get success, but fair play to um, them for the changes they made in that game as well. Bringing Gabriel Veron off the bench and about a minute later, he, he out muscles the, the defender and puts in a cross for Dudu to, to bundle it in. Um, so yeah, really impressive from them. And, and it's going to be, I don't think it's necessarily going to be the, the, the best final to watch. Here's me. <laughs> massively under not selling it like I should do but um, I think um, it's definitely going to be the immovable object against the unstoppable force and um, and it's, it's going to be a really intriguing um, tense tactical game I think between those two sides I mean do you think that Flamengo have got enough 
firepower to, to, to get past this, this um, obdurate Palmeiras side, Peter? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the key question, isn't it, really? It, it, you feel as though the onus is going to be on Flamengo in, in the final. We've now got that shift to the one-off final on the 27th of November at the Estadio Centenario. And, yeah, you, you look at that Palmeiras side and you think that they're probably going to play quite cautiously. We saw what they can do. They can make it very difficult for teams, limit them to a few chances, but then they can go up and just nick the goal. And I think that will be their outlook for this game. So I think most of us neutrals watching on will probably be looking to Flamengo to provide us with with something, even though, you know, they're hardly the, the romantic story in <laughs> South America, given the money they have. But I think in terms of how the two go about playing football, it's probably the more attractive of, of the two. Um but, but I think, as you say, I think it's going to be very, very tight because that's what Palmeiras can do. They can bring a team down to that and they'll be more than happy uh, to do it. Simon, I mean, if you were going to lean one way or the other, where would you see sort of the value in that final, do you think? Yeah, it's a tricky one because I was really, really impressed with some of Flamengo's passing play. Uh, they they really moved the ball very confidently. Um So, you know, they're a very impressive team. But as I say, like, I think a, a tight final... Uh, which often these games are, they're nervy. Remember last year's final, a lot of European viewers were excited for the to watch this exciting Libertadores final and it was, <laughs> it was a bit rubbish. <laughs> um, and if it is a bit rubbish, then I think Palmeiras will win. Um, so it's interesting to see. I, I, I think Palmeiras will do it, but I've doubted or I've tried to make a case against Flamengo before and, uh, and they've proven me wrong. So I think clearly Flamengo will be the protagonist in this final. Um, but I think that will just play into Palmeiras' hands and, and I can see them potentially snatching something. If there's goals in the game, then it will probably be Flamengo. Um, but if it's a very, very tight affair, as they often are, then Palmeiras might get a moment here and there. And I, and I you know, David Luiz looked very, very good, but maybe, maybe he's going to have a mistake in him. Maybe it's going to come in the final. Maybe this <laughs> glorious return to Brazil is going to go wrong. I don't know. I'm trying to persuade myself against Flamengo again. But so I, I would say, I say it's gonna, if it's tight and it probably will, I'm leaning maybe towards Palmeiras, but I, I can understand why people would go the other way on that one. Yeah, I think one thing that gives me maybe, yeah, that gives maybe the Palmeiras the edge is as great as Flamengo are going forward, I think that you st- still can get in behind them a little bit more. And, and to be fair, even though the scoreline was very convincing, Diego Alves made some cracking saves in both games, especially in those first 10, 15 minutes against Barcelona. They they had some real good opportunities. He made a great double save after about five minutes. And and he had a really good game for a, for a keeper who, you know, was on, a, on the side that was, wins 4-0 on aggregate. So I think that Palmeiras, if they take their chances, um, could definitely get a bit more joy against um, a defence that isn't as solid as, as Mineiro's typically was. And one other player I think we should just give a little bit of a mention to as well is Andres Pereira. Um, I thought he came in, had a really good game in both legs and he's maybe not as glamorous a name you see coming back from Europe because he's whenever I've seen him for United he, he, he never really impressed me that much but he, he looked level above a lot of the players there and I think 
he's going to be that guy who fills a similar sort of role to to, to Gerson, um, who very different players, but I think he he has that ability to control things. He's got a great range of passing. He had some decent shots. I think he hit the woodwork twice um, over the two games as well. And yeah, for all the you know big head madness of David Luiz at the back, I think Pereira could be uh, one to one to watch there in the in the middle of the park. Yeah, I also just wanted to get your opinions as well because we can't not point out the fact that this is Palmeiras, the, the reigning champions, into the final again, up against the champions of the, of the previous year. But obviously Palmeiras on one game away from winning back-to-back titles, something which we haven't seen since the turn of the, the century with, with Boca. Um, how much of an achievement would that be, Simon, for you? I mean, we know how difficult the Copa Libertadores is. That's why we don't see this happen very often. But Palmeiras as we just laid out, are really very close to being able to do so and you couldn't write them off in this final. Yeah, they're, they're a very professional outfit and I think if you look at the challenges they face, not only the altitude of Bolivia, you know, the tough, tough away games that, that come up in the Libertadores and can unsettle teams and embarrass some of the giants, but also the fact that there's, even just looking in Brazil, there's four or five Brazilian teams um, knocking about with, with top European level talent. You know, we're, we're, we're looking at some very strong squads. Maybe Argentina isn't quite as strong at the moment, although obviously River have a, have a strong tide. Um, and maybe the rest of the continent isn't quite at its best level, but even just overcoming the Brazilian sides is a, is a very tough task. And with the unpredictable and the difficulties of away ties in the Libertadores, um, it, it's a big achievement. And I think, for it to be a team that's very, very organized, professional, <laughs> at times dirty, at times time-wasting, at times playing for the for the minimum difference, I think it's not a surprise. And I think it perhaps shows what, what what's required to be consistently very strong in the Libertadores. Um, so it's a huge achievement. Um, they have great quality, but also I think it's the nous and the know-how um, that really sets them apart perhaps from some of the other talented sides we see in the competition. Yeah, I mean, we'll have to obviously wait and see on Saturday, November 27th. Both those sides heading to Montevideo for the one-off final. Um, and as we said, it's very difficult to pick a winner from Palmeiras or Flamengo, but two heavyweights in that Libertadores final. Um, in the Sudamericana final, we also have two Brazilian sides, but not two of the traditionally gigantic Brazilian sides as we have in the Libertadores. In the Sudamericana, Red Bull, Bragantino, did what we probably expected them to do as one of the best teams this year in the Sudamericana and they swept aside Libertad 5-1 on an aggregate and perhaps more surprisingly when you looked at the balance of the two semi-finals Atletico Paranaense beat Peñarol 4-1 on aggregate um, Tom it's probably not that much of a surprise to see the two finals complete with Brazilian sides but we felt as though there was maybe a little bit harder to call the two semi-finals in the Copa Sudamericana. So what did you make of those two matchups? So yeah, basically I think the the way things panned out, certainly in that Bragantino game was was kind of just as we predicted um in the last podcast there. Bragantino, the favourites, really showing their dominance, particularly in that first game. I thought that yes, 2-0 um seemed like it was a fairly even game, but it, that definitely could have been three or four, and particularly Artur was was in fantastic form and showed he why he's one of the most exciting players in South America now. You know that 
assist for the first goal um, was was really really something, and that just set the tone for this entire tie. Um, yeah, Libertad just just looked sort of second best throughout, and um, and I think. Bragantino did everything we've come to expect from them. A really youthful side, um, playing that sort of um, 4-3-3 formation there and showing they've got threats from all over the place with obviously Cuesho coming in and and scoring a brilliant goal in, in the um, in the second leg there. Um, and just, yeah, Artur running the show as well. Uh, I mean, there's a bit of a spell of Libertad pressure there, um, but realistically, um, they only looked like there was going to be one winner. So they're going to go into the final strong favourites. But but as you said, I think maybe it's easy to underestimate this Atletico Paranaense side. Peñarol looked like the form team coming into it, scoring plenty of goals, being real protagonists in this t- competition. But I think... But Anense is a club that's kind of been in this situation a little bit more than, than the Uruguayans. You know, they've won the Sudamericana in 2018. They've won the Copa del Brazil recently. They've, they've been into the round of 16 of the Libertadores a couple of times in the last few years. And they've got that continental experience. And I think that's what really came through because they kept their heads. They had much less in terms of possession. I think both games, they... They they were sort of lower on XG in terms of, I think Peñarol were like 2.5 to 0.68 in the first game. And then the second game was again, two to one for, for Peñarol. But um, for all the shots and the possession that Peñarol had, Atletico just were so much more efficient. And I think that that really loose goal at the start of the first leg, again, set the, set the tone for this tie because Peñarol just created a problem for themselves with some really sloppy passing. They had a few times that they could have got rid, but then sort of a really ugly bicycle kick, probably the ugliest type of bicycle kick I've seen, just kind of depressingly looped over the keeper from ex-Penurol man, uh, David Terrans. And and then, yeah, it was just... Um, from that point on, you felt that Peñarol had a bit of a mountain to climb against this really defensively solid uh, side there. And, and and again, another player that we need to give a bit of um, respect towards and, and give him a mention was, was Pedro Rocha coming back. Um, I think he's been in Russia recently and, and he came off the bench on both games to score, you know, important goals. Um, and yeah, Peñarol had their chances. They had that penalty that was missed. Um, they had a, a really good chance for Fagundo Torres early on in the second leg. And if one of those goes in, you're suddenly looking at a completely different tie. So definitely, I think Paranaense are there to kind of spoil the party. And I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that they're just going to roll over and, and let Bragantino win. So I think we're going to be in for a, a really interesting tie between two sort of up and coming sides in Brazil who, who do things a little bit differently and are reaping the rewards because of it. Yeah, I mean, they're going to meet one week before the Libertadores final at the Estadio Centenario as well in Montevideo. Um, as, as Tom just spelled out there, we kind of saw what we expected more or less from Red Bull Bragantino. We saw maybe a little bit more from Atletico Paranaense. But Simon, how do you see those two sides going in? You obviously know each other well from the same league as they meet in the final. Would you would you still look at Red Bull Bragantino as being the, the solid favourites in that one? Yeah, I think they're two very well-ranked one clubs with two very effective, efficient sides. Um, I think there, there's some similarities for me in the two sides in terms of 
in terms of their setup, in terms of how they've kind of established themselves as, you know, top half or, or contenders outside the big teams there in Brazil. Um, so I think it's going to be an interesting one. I think it's going to be quite a tight one. Um, I don't think it's going to be as 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 tight and as, as restrained as perhaps the Libertadores final if Palmeiras get their way. But I think it will be a, a game which is very even. Both teams can create chances, as we've seen, you know, four goals and five goals uh, on aggregate in the semifinals for, for the two sides. Um, I think it will probably come down to a bit of magic. And as Tom's mentioned, the man Arthur, that he's a really, really good player. Very creative, very elegant. You know, he just makes everything look so easy. Um, I was also impressed by Eric of Paranaense breaking from midfield as well. So he could he could have a have a have a role to play in that game. He was very effective at breaking breaking the lines with some of his runs. So it's going to be an interesting one. But you know, I think it's going to be a couple of goals here or there. Um, uh, I think it's going to be fairly even. But I think maybe the magic of Artur could be the difference in the final for me. Yeah, I mean, he's been the standout player of the tournament so far, particularly when you get to the business end of the tournament. I mean, his contributions with goals and assists, absolutely ridiculous across the quarterfinal against Rosario Central and then the semi-final victory against Libertad. I think the only thing, look at watching the game, particularly the second leg against Libertad, yes, they were leading 2-0 from the first leg, so you'd say that they were already one foot in the final but I felt as though there was periods in that game against Libertad during in the second leg when, when they did look a bit shaky defensively. And I thought certainly if Libertad had a little bit more composure in front of goal, they too guilty of missing a penalty. You, you could have kind of made an argument for if they'd scored one and then got another one quickly after. You'd have liked to have seen how Red Bull Bragantino would have reacted to that because there was moments that they did seem to have problems with, particularly Melgarejo, um, who came back into the side, missed the first leg for Libertad. He caused them problems. And so maybe, just maybe, there's something there that you could say, yes, they've scored a lot of goals um, during this tournament and during the, not the last two rounds, and they should be favourites. But I think Central as well scored goals against them, who aren't necessarily the strongest team in Argentina. Um, so maybe there's a glimmer of um, hope there as well for Atletico Paranaense. But again, it, another fascinating final in the Sudamericana that's on the 20th um, <laughs> and either way we're going to have a Brazilian double in Commonwealth competitions this year and I don't think any of us are overly surprised about that um, obviously this month though we also have World Cup qualifiers so a hugely busy few weeks in South America um, and World Cup qualification is busier than normal as we're still trying to catch up with those fixtures missed. So another three games coming up over the coming week or so, um, kicking off on Thursday, October 7th, then the second fixture on Sunday, October the 10th, and then the following Thursday, October 14th. Um, we still don't have a resolution on what we were talking about one month ago, Brazil-Argentina, the game that got stopped after five minutes. So those two sides have eight games played effectively in the table, but they still sit first and second in the table, Brazil, clean sweep so far, eight wins from eight, the best attack, the best defence, and still, as we said one month ago, the team to beat. Um, when you look at the fixtures here, Simon, coming up over the next week, what really catches your eye in terms of the interest in South America? Uh, yeah, no, in terms of the first round of fixtures, it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting. Obviously, um, there's some big, big games coming up and every every point matters so much now. We're into the 11th round of fixtures, so it's really heating up and it's gonna uh, there's going to be some big, big games and big, big points and the table's going to change a lot. 
at least in the middle, <laughs> at least in the middle. Obviously, from a Colombian perspective, there's three big games coming up. Uruguay away is going to be tough. Brazil at home is going to be tough. And then Colombia facing Ecuador. And last time they faced each other, Colombia got absolutely destroyed. And it was the end of uh, Carlos Quiroz, Tyler's manager. So Colombia on a bit of a high after a 3-1 home win, a very comfortable 3-1 home win against Chile. Um, but these are going to be some tough, tough games. So, you know, Uruguay away is going to be really interesting, I think, in terms of these two sides' fortunes in the competition. Um, I think these are two sides who we think, well, I would think probably should get to the World Cup, but potentially could fall short. You know, they're, they're, they're around that, not quite Brazil, probably not quite Argentina at the moment, the way Argentina are playing, but in that group behind. So it's going to be a really interesting one. Um, for me, that's probably the, the game of the round, the next round. Um, and then Argentina-Uruguay, again, is going to be obviously a huge, huge game and, and a fascinating one. And you can maybe tell me about how, how big that will be. So in terms of the games coming up, those are someone that I'm really interested in. I think Uruguay have three massive games uh, coming up in this, in this window. Uh, Colombia, Argentina and Brazil. Um, it, it could be a very good window. It could be a very difficult window for Uruguay. So it's going to be quite interesting to see how they progress and how their fortunes lie. So I think with Argentina and Uruguay, their story during these this window, if it goes well, they're suddenly you know on their on their road on their way to the World Cup. If it goes badly, they could be in trouble. And I think with both of those teams, it has the potential to go very well and very badly because they have some tough games coming up. Yeah, certainly. I think. Uruguay, when you mentioned those, and the, I think the importance for Uruguay on Thursday in the first game of this week against Colombia takes huge importance because if they don't get a result at home against Colombia, then they head into games against Argentina and Brazil. Uruguay could find themselves starting the week in third and then dropping out of those places because I think one month ago we talked about the table in South America is now beginning to take a little bit of shape and we're seeing Brazil, I think, as, as given they're going to go through. They're going to take their place at the World Cup, most likely as the winners of the group. Argentina now, dependent, regardless of really what happens with that game against Brazil, look likely to be the second best team. But we are seeing this week, potentially, a huge say in what happens in that little group of teams below. And that's why I think those fixtures for Uruguay is important. You mentioned Colombia as well, but then we have Colombia level on points with Ecuador, who currently on goal difference sit in that fourth position. Colombia in the playoff spot in fifth. And we're looking this week at a crunch, crunch few fixtures for Paraguay, uh, Peru and Chile, I feel. Because if those three sides don't have positive weeks and take significant points from their fixtures, we might be starting to tick teams off and say, well, you're not going to a World Cup, which would be pretty big considering there's still a fair amount of time left. Do you think we could start after this round of three games, Tom, start to see who's gone already from this running? There's definitely potential for that. I mean, I think as as much as the the Colombia Uruguay game and the in the Colombia Ecuador game are, are really standing out, that Chile Peru Clásico del Pacífico is is going to be as big as any game. Um, it's very even odds on pinnacle that reflect how difficult that game is to predict. Predict, and I think that whoever wins that game, if there is a winner, of course. Mm could really use that as a springboard. You know, Peru, if they beat Chile at home, they've then got Bolivia away, always, obviously always difficult at altitude, but certainly not impossible to, to pick up something the way the Bolivia are playing at the moment. And certainly even against Argentina away, you know, they've played 
plenty of games and, and there's played out plenty of draws between those sides. So you can see Peru, if they if they can pick up six, five, even seven points out of these games, they're suddenly right back in the mix. And I think Chile, again, they've got Peru away, Paraguay at home, Venezuela at home. They're going to see that as three really winnable fixtures. But f- as I've said before, they're just really struggling for goals. I think they've got one win in their last 10 and that was at home to Bolivia. I, As much as you, as a Chile fan, you would look at this and say, okay, yeah, here's the, here's the chance where we can really stage a comeback. I just don't see it happening. And and again, Paraguay do have that chance as well of, of getting in there. Um, Argentina at home, Chile away, Bolivia away. Not the easiest fixtures, but they could come out of it with some with some more points, especially given that there's real potential for Colombia and Uruguay to drop points and they're not going to be that far away. So I, I don't think we're necessarily going to be able to tick off all three of those teams. I think maybe one of them, um, potentially two of them, we can all but say goodbye to in terms of qualifying for the World Cup. But so much is, I think, will depend on on just how Colombia and, and Uruguay do because certainly that, that first game is such a six-pointer and you kind of think if Uruguay can win it um, and they are slight favourites, I think two-to-one favourites with Pinnacle um, to, to get the win at home against Colombia, you then almost could say as, uh, for Uruguay, well, we know we're going to be an underdog away to Argentina and Brazil. If we don't pick up anything, it's not the end of the world. If we pick up a point or two, brilliant. But as long as they beat Colombia, I think they'll be relatively content with their with their group of, uh, round of fixtures. Whereas Colombia really have two crunch games. I think with that that Ecuador um, game being a, a huge chance to to get revenge after that 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 pumping. I mean, typically they they have a very good record over their neighbours. Um, but the way things are going, and and if Ecuador, who've I think could be the, the real big winners of this uh, round if everything goes to plan. They could come into that Colombia game if they beat Bolivia and Venezuela, two wins in a row and, and full of confidence and momentum. And they have a real chance to to push away from the chasing pack and, and maybe even consolidate third place for the time being. So it's it's going to be really, really fascinating. Um, and I, I think, yeah, there's, there's going to be a lot of drama coming, especially if if things don't go well for Uruguay and Colombia, they could start really feeling the heat. And Simon, what is the, the feeling in, in Colombia about the national team in, in their position? Obviously, we're, we're saying it, it's an important week. They have some huge games that by the end of it, we'll probably have a clearer idea of, of how Colombia are going to be looking towards a World Cup. But as it is at the moment, in that fifth place at the moment, level on points with Ecuador, um, what's the feeling from the public there to say, are they, are they confident that they'll finish above the likes of Ecuador? I think I think the result against Chile has given a massive boost and a massive lift to everyone in Colombia because prior to that, they, they, they drew with Bolivia with a late goal. Very disappointing. They also drew against Paraguay in a game where they were probably on top for, for a for a decent amount of the game away in Paraguay. So then to get that win against Chile was, was massive. Obviously here the question is, Hammers... Should Hammers come back into the team? He's not been included in the squad. He's obviously moved to Qatar. He's going to be playing regular football. Quintero is in the side, um, despite not playing in one of the more traditional big leagues. So the question will be, uh, how long can the manager resist Hammers? Um, the public opinion is very much divided on Hammers. 
Um, obviously, he's had great, great moments for Colombia and has been a huge, huge star, one of the best players at a World Cup. You know, that's that's significant, of course. Um, but people see him as a bit of a spoilt brat sometimes as well, you know. I don't know, the, the, the live streams and saying stupid things and, you know, saying he doesn't like the weather. Like, in isolation, a lot of these things, you can kind of say, no, it's no big deal, you know, it's normal. But it's kind of come together as crap with a picture of someone who's maybe not that serious or maybe not focused on his football. So I think there's, uh, whereas with other players at other times, the manager will be under huge pressure to bring back their star, star player. Um, I think at the moment uh, there isn't that great push for Hamas to come back in, but three bad results. And of course, everyone will go, yeah, because you didn't call up, call up Hamas. You know, that's, <laughs> that's how these things work. So it'll be interesting to see. In terms of Colombia, yeah, that Chile result was massive. If you take that Chile result out, then Colombia have zero expectation for their national team. But that Chile result has been a huge lift. Although I don't think Chile are that good. <laughs> um, but it was a very, very impressive performance. But with this, with the table as it is right now, the interesting thing is these round of fixtures, it's a lot of the teams in the bottom half playing each other and a lot of teams in the top half playing each other. So someone's going to drop out of that and someone's going to fly up uh, and it's going to be very interesting. Obviously, there'll be easier games to come, but... You know, there's momentum and, and having three games so close together as well is a very, very different thing. You know, the, the first one, maybe you come together as a team and you're not quite prepared. And then maybe the second one, you're kind of a bit more settled. This is three games. You know, this is this is like more than a club team will play in a two week period. So it's going to be interesting how who teams can get who they can bring, who's injured and that kind of stuff, what squad they can get together and how quickly they can settle in and, and get settled. Um, that's all going to be an interesting factors, but it's, yeah, it's going to be interesting. And in terms of Colombia, as I say, um, mixed feelings, but that Chile result has lifted spirits hugely. Yeah. You're talking there about who play, or who squads can bring players in. One of the things we've seen already with the squad announcements um, on this occasion, Brazil have been able to call up their, European or UK-based players. We didn't see them do that last time. They, they still did pretty well in the, the, the break, despite calling on some players that wouldn't ordinarily be in the Brazil squad. This time round, it's a far more familiar uh, Gigi squad for Brazil. Um, Tom, we, we've seen Brazil otherwise win eight games. They've scored 19 goals in that. They've only conceded two. Um, back to more or less full strength this time round. Do you look at Brazil's fixtures? They play Venezuela away, um, Colombia away, and then Uruguay at home, and look at that's going to be another three wins for Brazil. And could, leading on to that, could they possibly go through South American qualification, winning every single game? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you wouldn't put it past them. They are that just machine that just keeps chugging through and getting the results. I don't think they'll win every game though. Um, I think they're, you know, they're, there's probably a couple of draws that you could see them picking up there. And, and it is, you know, it's, it's a tough sort of couple of games that they've got away, away to Colombia, home to Uruguay, two sides that are scrapping for every point that they need now. Yes. You think home form should carry them through against Uruguay, but you know, there's some bad blood in that Colombia game over, over over recent years, and and away in Colombia, you could definitely see maybe a, um, if if Colombia believe in themselves and, and don't feel inferior to, to the Brazilian counterparts, that a draw would be you know certainly possible because at this point Brazil are going to qualify. They're probably going to qualify top if they take their foot off the gas a little bit. It's not going to be it's not going to be the end of the world. No one's 
no one's catching them. Um, and I think certainly you're going to get three points away to Venezuela. Pinnacle odds, I think, are nine to one for a for a Venezuela win. So it shows how unlikely that's going to be. Um, but one thing I'm really intrigued about, as well as the you know European and Premier League players coming back into this Brazil side, is you've also got the inclusion of Arthur Cabral, who's been ripping it up for Basel the last uh, last few years. A player who who didn't really make too much of an impact in Brazilian top flight. But he's someone who could really stake his name for that that number nine spot for for the Brazil national team, which is still kind of up for grabs as much as they've got loads of great options. There's no one who's really tied it down as, as, as a definite. So I think that's interesting. There's some interesting home-based players in, included in there. I, I really like Rafinha as well coming in. So there's a lot of interest there, I think, in, in Brazil's constant evolution that, that's worth giving them a watch and and Peter sort of moving on to to another one of the favorites um Argentina how, how do you kind of see their their three fixtures going and and um, what do you make of it I mean that first game away to Paraguay it's always tough and and I think um it's a game that over the last few years has has been there's been plenty of draws and l- lots of low scoring I think there's rarely more than one or two goals scored so maybe a maybe a little bet on under 2.5 goals uh would, would be a potential good value there what do you think yeah certainly i think that'll be a difficult game as we've said paraguay one of those teams currently on the outside looking in scrapping for everything and i think in asuncion will be tough for argentina um certainly you know players just arriving they're going to have to just sort of hit the ground running travel to asuncion and play a difficult game there so I wouldn't be that surprised if Argentina dropped points and, and, and took a draw there. Wouldn't be that much of a shock, I don't think. And, and, and as a result, that would lead into what's a pretty interesting week for Argentina. I think regardless, Argentina will be will be fine for their qualification. But if they weren't to get a win against Paraguay and then obviously would face next up Uruguay, the, the Clásico, back at the Monumental, there'd be a little bit more pressure riding on that game if they hadn't won. So, you know, you'd be looking at a Uruguay team probably just below them in the table, depending on how they got on on Thursday. Um, But again, you'd probably slightly favour Argentina back at home. They seem to have just gathered a bit more confidence from from where they were, from now being Copa America champions. The group, as we said last time, is very united. Um, And I think Scaloni has, has gradually got together really what is a, a very a core unit of his team there are still some question marks in some positions and I, and I think they're always going to be there teams are going to look at Argentina and I think always think maybe we can have a go at their fullbacks that's not going to go away because I don't think there's any natural replacement that you can plop into the Argentina lineup and say that solves that there's always going to be a question mark over Montiel or on the other side if you go with Acuna or Tagliafico People are going to look at that as a potential weak link. But I think otherwise, Argentina have, have answered a lot of their critics. Um, and, of course, we talk about people going into the lineup and, and really solving problems. Argentina have managed to do that in one crucial area, which is in goal, of course. And they now have arguably one of the form goalkeepers on the constant, one of the best goalkeepers around at the moment, certainly proving himself every level. Emi Martinez seems to get dropped into he steps up um <laughs> i know you're more than happy about that tom um but Argenti- oh, yeah. argentina have reaped the rewards <laughs> of that you know after a, after a long time of that being a position for the national team 
where people would look at Argentina and say, yeah, you know what? I'm not too keen on their keeper situation. Um, even going back when Sergio Romero was was out and out number one is a guy that wasn't playing at club level. So there would always be that question mark of, is eventually it going to catch up with him not playing regularly? Argentina now don't even have that problem. So we are seeing a set, more, much more settled Argentina. I'd be very surprised if they took maximum points from this week's action. But I think still think they'll solidify themselves in that position just behind um, Brazil. Does make the decision to bring four goalkeepers, especially Armani and Andrade, a little bit strange. Just when you think that, you know, let's phase some of these guys out. We've got Emmy Martinez for for a long time here. He's he's now a, such a cult figure in Argentina. He's he, there's sort of pictures of him on every school room, uh, school classroom, saying that this room's protected by Emmy Martinez. It, he's it's incredible how he's just risen to to a level of fame that that yeah it was nowhere near that before the Copa America so that's probably my my one sort of question mark about Scaloni's squad there is just why he's gone for four keepers and you know uh, but uh, yeah I'm obviously very biased when it comes to Emmy Martinez um, the man can do no wrong in my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's funny though, though on, on the question of the goalkeepers that, that now when people see the squad list, they say like Scaloni, Andrade's not playing for Boca anymore. You don't need to call <laughs> it up because there's always this question of, oh, well, if you pick Armani, then you should probably bring Andrade as well just so you don't upset one of the two teams. But obviously Andrade now playing as football in Mexico should have resolved that situation. But yeah, it's, it's a strange one to have four goalkeepers in the list but as I say I think Argentina should I suppose be he, he, he couldn't really pick uh, Rossi after the Super Classico performance though could he? No well no exactly he's the man that replaced Armani in the last squad um, will probably find himself under a degree of pressure again with the Boca fans after his showing on, on Sunday against River um, the last time round we finished up by focusing on the Argentine League. We've spoken a little bit more about it today because of the Super Classical, but we felt as though we'd finish episode two with it, with another closer look at one of the South American leagues. And with Simon here, no better time really to take a closer look at Colombia. Um, we'll start because it will lead us into really two of the historic teams. When you look at the league table as things stand in Colombia, we see um, two of the historic sides in the country leading the way. Um, Give us an update, Simon, of, of the state of play in Colombia at the moment. Yeah, so as you say, Atletico Nacional of Medellin and Millonarios of Bogotá, two of the most popular, successful teams in the history of the country. Uh, at the top, uh, Nacional doing very, very well. Um, they no longer have Osorio in charge. He's now gone to America de Cali. And uh, if you've been following Osorio's career closely, you won't be surprised that America de Cali are now down in ninth place. Um, I, I'm not a fan of the recent version of Osorio. He was a, he was a great manager once upon a time, but he's gone a bit mad, in my opinion. Um, but here we go. Um, so in terms of Colombia, yes, yeah, so the Nacional at the top, Mijonario is in second. In terms of Colombian football, one thing about Colombia is it's a country that's very, very diverse. It has many different regions. Um, if you look at somewhere like Paraguay with Ascensón, if you look at Uruguay uh, with Montevideo, these are countries with one city and then some smaller cities. Uh, Colombia is very much uh, divided with different regions and it has multiple big cities, um, which is great in terms of Colombian football because each city has two big teams and then a few small teams. 
Um, some regions have a few teams as well. So in Bogota, the capital, top of the hill, top of a hill, cold, weird weather. Uh, there's Millonarios and there is Santa Fe. Millonarios is the traditional kind of power, the traditional like team that uh, draws fans from around the country, whereas Santa Fe is more the team of the city, the team of the people. Uh, and that's kind of a, a narrative that is replicated in, in Medellin with Atletico Nacional, the kings of the cups, a team that's Nacional, as their name would indicate, a team that takes support from across the country because of their history of success. And Independiente Medellin, who kind of position themselves as kind of rebellious against the traditional powers of Nacional. So there's that balance in all of the different cities. The same in Cali, which is Colombia's third city, the, the land of salsa. Um, America de Cali, the big traditional powers, they have a red kit, the red devils. Um, and then there's Deportivo Cali, America de Cali, big traditional multiple Libertadores finals. They kept losing them in the 80s, but they got to the final, I think, three or four times across a decade. Uh, and then there's Deportivo Cali, which is the smaller team, uh, which actually has a great reputation of youth development. So there's maybe, so there's those six big teams. Then there's Junior of, of the Caribbean coast, the only big team on the Caribbean coast of Colombia, of any of the coasts of Colombia, to be honest, um, in Barranquilla. Again, one of the giant teams, the team of Valderrama, uh, red and white striped kit. Uh, so those are kind of the big seven. And then there's a lot of teams which represent cities. Um, so there's, for example, teams from the coffee region, like uh, Tolima, Pereira. Uh, and then there's other teams, for example, that represent, you know, Pasto is from another city. So what you get in Colombia is you get teams spread out across the country, but you also get two big teams in the big cities. Uh, and then there's also rivalries between the cities. So Medellin, Bogota has a big traditional rivalry between the cities and that's played out in the games. So uh, Nacional Millonarios is, is a Clásico, but it's not a Clásico of two teams in the city, same city. It's like the, the classic, the Clásico of the mountains, you know, the, 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 the Bogota giants against the Medellin giants. So I think that's one interesting thing about Colombia. What you also get is you'll get these medium-sized teams like Tolima, who's consistently very good, and then you'll get some very, very small teams. Um, uh, and they, for example, Lequidad, they're based in Bogotá, but they're not Santa Fe or Millonarios, but they have a decent setup. You have Envigado, who are very much focused on youth development, and, and that's kind of the, the basis of their identity. Uh, and then there's teams named after animals, <laughs> which I'm not a fan of, but there you go. Uh, they're usually the teams that are least relevant. <laughs> the Eagles, the Jaguars. Um, yeah, that's just a personal opinion, but but there's, there's those teams as well. So in terms of Colombian league, it's, it's very interesting. The system of the league, there's an opening season and a closing season. So each year has two seasons. Um, there's a league stage and the top eight go through to the playoffs. That used to be groups, but now it's knockout, two-legged knockout ties. Uh, the idea is it keeps things competitive. It keeps things important. Relegation is very, very complicated and is decided over three years and six seasons. But but to cut it very, very short, basically, if you, if you haven't been really, really bad for the last three years, you're not in danger of relegation because it's calculated over three years. So... Basically, Nacional could not win another game for the for the next year and not get relegated. To to, to put it as as simply as that. Um, so it's it, the 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 short season and the playoffs keeps things exciting and competitive and keeps fans in the stadium. 
It's, it's one thing that, that is very different in, in Colombia to, compared to, for example, England. When the team is doing well, there's like no better atmosphere. It's incredible. The whole place is bouncing and singing and people queue for five hours to get tickets. And it's, it's huge. When the team is playing badly, there's 5,000 fans in the stadium and you, know, you couldn't pay a fan to turn up. So it's, it's very, very different. So the format is a solution to that problem, but probably also causes that problem. Because if, if the fans know that uh, in three months we'll start again, then they'll just wait three months and come back when maybe the team's better. So Colombian football is fascinating. Also, in terms of each region, it brings its own challenges. So, for example, there's some really, really hot cities Obviously, Barranquilla, where Colombia play the national team games. There's there's Huila, which is like a desert. Jaguares play in Monteria, which is very hot. So there's some sweltering 40-degree heat. There's altitude in terms of Bogota. Um, there's also some really cold places. So I remember um, Patriotas played a cup game away in Huila, and they complained that the air conditioning wasn't working, and they had to go and get changed in the car park because it was too hot. Uh, and then in the return leg in Patriotas, which is Tunja, which is quite cold, uh, Patriotas then turned off all the heating and turned off the hot water in the showers as kind of uh, to get their own back on them. So there's a, there's a lot of a lot of challenges in environments and that kind of stuff in Colombia as well. So it's a it's an interesting league. Um, there's a few big teams uh, and there's a lot of very good players. The quality people always ask me how is the level compared to the Championship, the Premier League. What I would say is there are a good number of Colombian players who could go straight into Champions League teams. But I would say tactically, overall, Colombia probably falls behind the likes of Argentina and Uruguay in terms of ideas. I think Colombia has some of the same issues that maybe Brazil does, although they seem to be resolving their issues. Um, so I'd say lots and lots of good talent, tactically perhaps a little bit behind, but with a load of potential to be up there with Brazil and Argentina if they get their stuff together. So an interesting league to follow. And Simon, I was going to ask if you could net, like pick three or four young talents to for our listeners who you would who'd quickly name check. Who would be your, your top three or top five right now? Okay, okay, okay. I wasn't prepared for this, but let's go. Okay, so Kindio uh, is a team that's done very, very well this season. Um, they're a newly promoted team, and their centre back uh, Brian Ceballos is really interesting. Um, he's the Colombia starting central defender, 1920, wins like 75-80% of his duels. It's incredible. Uh, he's on a free transfer at the end of, end of the year as well. So he's a player I know a lot of teams are very, very interested in. So he's one. Uh, I have to mention an Envigado player. Actually, I can mention two Envigado players. Envigado is this great academy that's produced Hammers and Quintero and all these guys. They've got a striker who's already made a move, has already agreed term to move to MLS. Um, uh, uh, he made his debut at 16 wearing the number nine shirt um, and uh, yeah uh, John Jada Duran he's a really interesting player he was always an incredibly mature effective target man even at 16 he was holding the ball up against big central defenders um, so he's one to really really watch uh, he's already moving up to MLS when he turns 18 they signed him when he was just turned 17 so there's a, a, a while to go still and he's playing very well for Envigado They've also got a, a player called Aspria, who's very interesting. Uh, a very, very talented, quick, creative, attacking player to, to keep an eye on. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Colombia brings through a lot of really, really good players. Um, and uh, often they move off uh, at a young age, but uh, there's a lot of talent. And I think also with Colombia, what you get is a great range of abilities. 
Um, I think if you, for example, if you look at Europe, what you have is you maybe go to Spain and you'll find these kind of smaller technical players, or you go to to a, a Nordic league and you might get the big central defenders. Colombia is very diverse, and each region has produces a different type of player. So the Pacific Coast, you get some of these taller players, these, these Calca. Everyone in Calca is a giant, and all of the Colombian central defenders, uh, Jerry Mina. Zapata, Christian Zapata, Danielson Sanchez all came from Calca, which is a small area, but has produced a lot of great central defenders. Tumaco down by the Ecuador borders produced a lot of great wingers and attacking quick fullbacks. Um, whereas in the interior of the country, Medellin has produced a lot of technical players. You get your creative wingers up in the, in the Caribbean coast. So what Colombia has is all these different ingredients and, and clubs actually scout specific regions for specific players. They know they'll find their central defenders in Calca. They know they'll find their wingers in the Caribbean coast. They know they'll look. They won't. They won't bother looking in Bogota, which is interesting. The capital, the biggest, one of the biggest cities in South America, produces very little talent, which is another interesting quirk. Um, but yeah, so Colombia is interesting for for that reason as well. You just get such a diversity of players. If you look at the Colombian national team, you'll see a, such a different range of qualities and, and styles and cultures and races, and that's a result of Colombia's very very, very mixed, very diverse uh, nature. Yeah, we, we've seen Colombia have great success over the years. Some great talents come out. Um, Tom, I'll just quickly ask you on the subject of Colombia in, in the Commonwealth competitions. Simon mentioned there a number of those teams, Atletico Nacional, obviously two times winners of the Libertadores. Once Caldas have won it. He mentioned America de Cali reaching the final on so many of occasions. Deportivo Cali also being runners up. And then in the Sudamericana as well, Independiente Santa Fe have won it. Julia were finalists just a few years ago. But in the last couple of years, we, we haven't really seen a Colombian side really be able to go on and compete. What do you think is the reason for that? Do you think that there's just been an improvement from the other nations or do, do you think there's something within Colombia that's a factor for that? Yeah, it's hard to put your finger on because they've got enough talent there, as we've said. Um, Simon yeah, did a, a great... Um, yeah, great information there about all those different blend of players who can come in and, and the teams often, you know, those big teams are able to put decent, decent teams together. And you think this is a side that, that could go far, but there's, you know, sometimes I think there's just that they don't have quite the same tactical nous to, to get through against some of those savvy Argentinian, Uruguay, even Paraguayan sides. Um, and they've been, I feel like they've been punching below their weight for the last few years now. Whether that's um, a factor that, you know, this year-long Libertadores, maybe that's not helped, um, helped the sort of smaller teams of smaller nations um, when you can maybe catch some of the bigger teams out, uh, you know, if they're out of sync and and put a really good run together. Um, like we saw with that Atletico Nacional side, they were one of the, the best champions that I've seen at this level in the last 10 years. So it's, it's a shame because I thought that was going to be a sort of a moment where they could kick on and, and start really challenging the elites in South America, but it's not quite ha- happened. And I think that, yeah, the, the longer format has only strengthened the already strong positions of mainly Brazil, but also Argentina. And, and yeah, now, now we're seeing those top clubs being able to retain and strengthen throughout a tournament. Um, like they maybe weren't able to do so before. And, um, yeah, it's, I think it's had a negative impact as well as just the number of Brazilian and Argentinian sides that are allowed into the competition. Maybe if we had as many, 
you know, an equal distribution, then you'd see some of these Colombian sides going a little bit further. So there's definitely so much potential there. Um, and hopefully there can be a bit better, um, maybe a few more ideas coming in, more coaches being produced as, as well would be something that could help the, uh, the clubs because a lot of the time it is, you know, you're looking more maybe towards other nations to provide those sort of top level coaches. So there's a lot, there's a lot of factors, but certainly out of all the teams, all the countries that should be able to provide the biggest threat, then Colombia's Colombia's the one for me. Yeah, Simon, just finally, is there a, a light at the end of the tunnel then in, in that case? Do you think there will be a point in the in the near future that we'll see Colombian football back at the, the top table in the Copa Libertadores? Yeah, it's difficult. As Tom said, um, It's it, if you ask Colombians, one thing they'll say is lack of jerarquia. This idea of of, of competing, the, the, the kind of the confidence. As I've said before, I think on, on the, the podcast, um, Colombian teams have to be better than their opponents to win, usually. <laughs> and they're not very good at, at playing the underdogs. They're not very good at overcoming organized, disciplined, experienced sides. They have great peaks, but also a lot of troughs. You know, it's very much up and down. And I think that comes back to the, 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 the management as well, the mental side of things. You know, it's too simplistic to say Colombian players just aren't as serious as Uruguayan players. That obviously isn't the case. But there's obviously a culture in Uruguay, uh, a culture of winning, a culture of professionalism, a culture of unity, um, which I think many nations, not only Colombia, could learn from. Uh, and if they had a bit of that identity, a bit of that nous, a bit of that mental toughness, I think it would would really complement the great physical and technical attributes that Colombian players have. Um, very, very talented uh, players. Lots and lots of, in terms of football, you know, it's, it's street football combined with, you know, a lot of very good youth football. So there's there's all of the ingredients there. It's just a case of bringing it together with some some leaders in terms of ideas and in terms of uh, mental strength and, and professionalism as well. So it, all the ingredients are there. It's whether and when they can bring everything together. Yeah, well, hopefully that will be in the in the near future. Certainly, be nice to get a bit of variation into those latter stages of the Copa Limited stories if this year is anything to go by. Um, but I think that will will do us for this month, the second episode. Um, thank you, uh, Simon, for that insight into the Colombian League particularly. And if you are interested in learning more about that, then be sure to follow Simon on Twitter at some point when he's allowed back on Twitter. <laughs> uh, but he is certainly one of the guys to follow and will be able to answer any and all of your questions on that league. So thank you, Simon. No, you're very welcome. It's great to talk about Colombia. It's great to be on the podcast as well. So thanks uh, thanks again. And I've really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, looking forward to next month and we can see what the hell happens in the next uh, 30 days. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we coming back next month to go look back on those rounds of uh, World Cup qualifiers and maybe we'll be doing more of a preview, I guess, on the Libertadores and Sudokama finals as they won't have been yet. But um, thank you as well to Tom Robinson for your insight as ever, Tom, on a host of subjects across the continent. Cheers, Peter. No, it's always, always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing how these qualifiers pan out and then obviously looking looking ahead to those big finals. So exciting times in South American football and uh, yeah, looking forward to the next one. Yeah, plenty of football in South America to come up over the coming weeks and we'll be back 
hopefully next month with another episode to bring you up to date. Remember, you can find all the latest odds and betting insight on Pinnacle.com, plus plenty of content on at Pinnacle Twitter and Pinnacle.betting on Instagram with plenty of other sport uh, coming your way, including the Champions League and more from the NFL. But remember, please gamble responsibly. Any odds that we were mentioned are correct at the time of recording, so go to Pinnacle.com to make sure you check the latest. 